This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Hi, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Sarah Grossman, joining you all today from my home in Berlin. And I have the enormous honor of welcoming you all to what is sure to be a thought-provoking and profound conversation on climate grief and hope, facilitated by our wonderful senior fellow, Bayo Komalafe. Before I introduce our topic today, I want to quickly share more about the backdrop for this conversation, which is being hosted by the Democracy and Belonging Forum. The Forum is a transatlantic community hosted by UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, which aims to connect civic leaders in Europe and the U.S., who are committed to bridging across lines of difference to counter authoritarianism and democratic degradation while centering the needs and concerns of marginalized groups. Our goal is to collectively complexify our understanding of concepts like justice, belonging, democracy, and inclusion, and plan towards a future where all of us and the earth itself can belong. BIO has played an enormous role in helping us rethink our work towards justice as our global senior fellow. This conversation is just one in a series of conversations that Bio has been having with leading thought leaders entitled The Edges in the Middle, where he explores belonging, identity, justice, and helps us move beyond binaries. Today, he's in conversation with two incredible women. The first is Naomi Klein, who is an award-winning journalist, columnist, and international best-selling author of eight books, including No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, and On Fire, which have been translated into over 35 languages. She's a columnist for The Guardian as well. In September 2021, she joined the University of British Columbia as UBC Professor of Climate Justice and is also the founding co-director of the UBC Center for Climate Justice. The second thinker today is Yuria Selidwin, who, like Bio, is a senior fellow at the Othering and Belonging Institute. She's a native of indigenous Nahua and Maya descent, born into a family of mystics, healers, poets, and explorers from the highlands of Chiapas, Mexico. She teaches indigenous epistemologies and spirituality, spirituality, and her work pioneered the indigenous contemplative experience within contemplative studies. In addition, she leads workshops on pro-social practices, such as mindfulness, compassion, kindness, and gratitude from an indigenous perspective. She emphasizes cultivating a sense of reverence and ecological belonging, raising awareness of social and environmental justice and community-engaged practices, revitalizing indigenous languages, traditional medicine, clean energy, and conservation. We are so honored to have both Yuria and Naomi with us today. Before I pass things off to Bio, I want to thank our ASL interpreters, Coffee Lemons and Toy Bogan from Interpret, Educate, and Serve, as well as to our captioners from LiveCap. I also want to give a shout out to my amazing colleague, Evan Yoshimoto, who is running the tech backstage. A quick reminder to forum members that you can reflect on this conversation with Bio directly afterwards in a Zoom room. You should have received a link to that. If you haven't, please reach out to me or Evan directly. And for the rest of you, if you'd like to follow our work, you can sign up for our e-news at democracyandbelongingforum.org and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DMB Forum. And with that, I pass things off to you, Bio. 
Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And welcome to everyone joining us from wherever you are in the world. Thank you for being part of these conversations and these explorations in times of crises. Um, this is perhaps the most difficult of the series that I will be taking part of, uh, taking part in. Um, this one about climate grief and hope is very dear to me. And significantly, it's the first that will breach the one hour mark and stretch out into 90 minutes. So we're going to have a substantial, free will, and spontaneous conversation together with my other sisters today. So, so difficult because I'm at home with my kids alone. So I would like everyone to know beforehand that if you see my son or my daughter bursting through that door, please acknowledge um, or celebrate the moment to the extraordinary ordinariness of that moment. Um, but let me start by saying a few things as I usually do about Umbaris. Um, the context of our conversation is such that we are not after some convenient consensus. And Umbari is an Igbo cosmological um, tool, a way of thinking about the world, our bodies, and our relationality with truth. Right? Um, if you want to know in depth or with some depth about um, this idea of conversation, then I would invite you to check out the web pages of the D Democracy and Belonging Forum and OBI as well. Um, I think it might be necessary to say that we are not after some final proposal. We are here to gesture together. In fact, truth is not the final boss stop here. There is no finality that is not already penultimate. The world flows and moves and dances and is promiscuous so that the whole, I don't want to say essence, the invitation here is to meet each other and be changed by the encounter. It's not even to get it. It's not even to, you know, grasp something final. It's to just stay with the trouble of our moving bodies. It's to postpone the, postpone the myth of the individual long enough to sense other realities. And I think that's a beautiful way of segueing into the context of this conversation, climate, grief, and hope. As you might know, if you're here, the IPCC report in March, released in March, the sixth iteration, was a story of loss and a story of demise. It seems to be the most powerful modern narrative gripping the heart of civilization. The idea that if we don't get our act together, we might breach that global threshold of a change in degrees of 1.5 degrees Celsius or Celsius degrees. And if we do that, then we would enter, we would have entered unprecedented times. Floods everywhere, 
um, ocean acidification, um, famine, hunger, pain, suffering. I come from those worlds. And our conversation here today is to stay with it in a different way. One symptom of that prognosis, that story, one outcome has been grief. But there's a sense in which our modern story is telling us to get around grief, right? That we cannot afford to grieve. Let's just get beside it and get to the point, which is to provide solutions to this crisis. The reason we're having this conversation is there is a simmering shared mycelial sense in which grief is not in the way. Perhaps grief is the thing to be done now. As the Yorubas in West Africa would say, when a god passes, the thing to do is to fall down, is to fall to one's knees and not to challenge the, the weather. What if grief is the invitation and not the impediment? What if we're being called to do other things? with our times, with our bodies, with our senses. This is what we want to do together. So join us. Nothing here is pre-planned. This is gonna be playful. I invite you to show up in any way that you wanna show up. Um, my sisters, can we bring them to the screen? Thank you so much for joining us today um, in this ongoing exploration of possibility and impossibility. I don't know what expertise is in, is in a time of loss, right? It, it seems we have to let go of those handles, those holds we have on uh, the normal. So I thought we could start by and again, this is not going to be centered around my questions. I thought we could just do something different and just pass along with each other things that are emerging for us. But my first prompt to get things started is, is if we can share stories of loss to open us to the energies of this space together. Are there accounts and narratives of loss that are there to you, that are significant to you in this time of metaphysical loss of civilizational demise. Um, this is the invitation. And any of you could respond and then we take it together. Okay, I'll just pass, I'll just pass the mic literally <laughs> to my dear sister, Yuria. This is my indigenous Maya Teltan language, and with it, I am honoring my lineage of the Nawa and Maya Teltan peoples of the highlands of Chiapas in Mexico, where I was born and raised. My background is precisely that 
picture of that um, place of wonderlands of flowing waters, the land of Quelha, which was how our lands were named before they were um, taken from uh, us. Uh, and I speak these languages also in honor of the Huich and Ohlone tribes where I am standing today as I honor also those ancestors. And also to remind us that these ancestors that I speak about are not only our lineage, human lineage, but our ancestors as our Mother Earth, as our Father Sky, about oceans, our corals, our forests, all of these relatives that are guiding our right action today. Um, and that uh, will be also talking about how resilient we can be when the weaving, the web of that network of uh, ancestors, both from the past into the present, and also those emerging ancestors that are coming from what will be, are orienting our action today, our yes. collective action today. We are not these separated beings. We are weaved beings connected into our lands, into our breaths, into all of our relatives, four-legged, winged, myceliated, rooted, finned, all these relatives with whom we shared this planet, our Mother Earth. But we see that there's so much loss happening today. It's not only the biodiversity loss that we are experiencing, the massive extinction, but the cultural loss that correlates with that biodiversity loss. The indigenous languages is just one way in which we can see that this loss is happening, threatening our diverse possibilities for finding solutions together. Mm. So speaking my language is a way of bringing that diversity, that mm. cultural array of possibilities together. And I will continue weaving into how loss also can bring meaning today into uh, weaving stories of hope. And I give also our uh, space to our sister Naomi that's here as well. Um, well, it's, it's really uh, an, uh, an honor to be in conversation with both of you. Um, and yeah, I appreciate, Bio, what you said about expertise because I've I'm certainly not expert in these types of conversations. You know, I'm, I'm trained as a journalist. I'm a very fact, fact, fact uh, uh, person. Um, and I've sort of reached the limits of, 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 of that particular model of, well, if right. we could just prove it enough, you know, you mentioned the IPCC report. And of course, this is, you know, and all of us, you know, have had relationships with the Academy and the whole premise of the thing is, well, if we can just prove it, right? And, and, and we and we stack up the facts uh, 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 and and the proof 
I would trust it if it was ever there between uh, the, this idea that if you if you have enough if if you have robust enough data sets, then you the policy will change. Um, so the work that I've been doing at the university has been really trying to work with young scientists, you know, who are still, you know, in, in graduate school um, and are probably got into this work because they love the natural world. They're connected. A lot of folks tend to be, you know, less socially comfortable and more in their bodies when they are in the natural world. And yet they find themselves kind of acting as undertakers, right? Of, of sort of, of collecting the, the data of loss, the evidence of, of, of extinction with no outlet, with, with no acceptable way to feel it, right? In fact, you're supposed to turn it off. So we've been working on different kind of pedagogical models, which is just a fancy way of saying being in our feelings and reading powerful writing and letting it change us and trying our hand at it. But, you know, you asked about to speak to a feeling of loss and an experience of loss. And um, I want to acknowledge them. I'm speaking. I, 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 I um, live in a place that is called uh, in Western um, uh, European recent history, the quote unquote sunshine coast, not very sunny, um, except for a couple months of the year. It's mostly rainy. It, it, it's temperate rainforest, but it's been so dry in recent years that we're tipping away in, from a, being a rainforest at all. And it's salmon country. Um, and it's also a graveyard. It's also a place of genocide. And the, the lands that, that where I am speaking from are the lands of the Fisha people. And people tuning in today may remember this very, very talking to non-Indigenous people news that in the interior of British Columbia, two hours from here, at the so-called Kamloops Residential School a couple of years ago, um, uh, uh, more than 200 unmarked graves children were found. And other nations began a process of, of confirming their own stories. They knew that the graves were there at the sites of the former so-called residential schools. I say so-called because their goal was not education. Their goal was ex extinguishing indigenousness. Um, as Gloria was speaking about, that, that tremendous cultural um, assassination really um, attempted. Um, but just 15 minutes from here, a week ago, the Shishat Nation confirmed the, the presence of 40 children, as they said, these are not remains, these are children. Um, so the loss is very, very heavy in the lands here. Um, and, um, and it's also a time of rebirth, it's spring, it's, it's you know, but it's, it feels so precarious. You know, every bird song, um, every, every animal sighting, you know, we just don't know what's next because we're part of, an ecosystem where the, the salmon a little bit south of us in California and Oregon are not coming back. And so everybody is wondering what, um, you know, what the future holds. My father went fishing two days ago and came back and said, not a bite. And it isn't just like a bad fishing trip, right? It's like, what does this mean? Right. Um, I, 
you know, I haven't seen a seal in months. I use, I, I used to see them all the time. What does that mean? I don't know. It could be nothing. It could be, they could be back. They could be back later today, but it's that feeling of being on a knife's edge. Feeling that a lot. I uh, like to weave into that um, the story that Sister Naomi just brought. Um, how the moments that we face loss and we really embody the grieving process is the total moment of surrendering. Like realizing that that arrogance that keeps humans in a hierarchical uh, organization, feeling that they are somehow um, exceptional you know, from, and different from all others, that arrogance dissolves the moment that we realize we are powerless, really, to the process of life, you know, to the process of spirit, to the process of nature. That idea of um, bringing not only the possibilities of the mysterious, right? The possibilities of the stories, that not everything can be measured as Western sciences, but rather as how indigenous sciences speaks about what we don't know, what we can't know, and how we can make meaning of precisely that unknowing and resting in that unknowing by finding the right insight to the action that we need to do as a collective, right? So indigenous sciences brings us back into the power of relationality, you know? brings us again as well the empowerment of the collective, you know? or also the intersubjective process. Is indigenous sciences are not about an object that's separated, that's being studied, but rather it's an intersubjective process in which we dialogue with that other one that we know is sentient and has agency. And thus we enter into a process in which both will be transformed. And we find meaning by that webbing, by that weaving, and by letting go of that need of control that is actually just coming from a sense perhaps of ownership or transactional, like what I will get. And then we return us into what we can do for the other, right? So it's a reciprocal process. It's a reciprocal relationship. So rather than seeing then loss as the process of um, dispossession, then it's actually a re-empowering process of a new source of life. Thank you. Um, I just oh, want to please, please. build on that a little bit. Um, you know, I was really struck, Yuria, that you, you said that grief is surrender, because right before I was making a couple of notes thinking about why so many people I know in the climate movement, in the climate justice movement, including, are afraid of, of grief. Um, 
and I and I wrote down just now it, it it's because they equate grief with surrender, right? Um, but what I meant was political surrender, right? Was was that um, that that there? I think there's a fear that if we really open the door, well, well, if we fall down, we'll never get up, right? Um, and and that that the that that if we if we let our if we let ourselves feel the depths of the loss, the depths of the fear that we'll just somehow never be able to be galvanized again. And, and it's the opposite, really, that, that grief is uncontainable, right? Including that surrender, but, but any kind of like, I work with the, the students I mentioned, you know, it's not a course on climate anxiety or climate grief. It's a course on climate feelings. Um, and, and that's the first thing I say is like, it can be rage. It can be, it can, it can be uh, just, um, it can be lost. It can be hope. It can be, it can be homesickness. It can, there's so many emotions. And why do we prescribe just this, this one? But the main thing I want is just feel anything, like feel it a lot, you know, because I feel like what we're, what, what, what is the source of the hopelessness or despair, it, which is, you know, not, those are legitimate emotions, but it's the, it's a deadeningness really that, that it, that is, that is what I'm most afraid of in myself and in the people I work with. It's just not feeling, uh, somehow turning off and losing access to sources of strength and 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 rebound and, and propulsive force. Um, so yes, yeah. anything at all. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. We know that uh, that emotions, especially strong emotions, right? Like, and maybe we can start moving beyond the duality of positive and negative emotions. They're mm -hmm. just emotions, right? And emotions, as we know from recent great uh, research of emotional uh, science, of how much these are ways of we appraise our behavior and that orient our actions, right? So we use these emotions as compass, a moral compass to then Uh, create our our pathways, but then again, I return to the to the need of creating these pathways together, mm -hmm. right? Especially bringing those communities that have not had uh, the the platform for being participants in decision making, but whose lives are mostly impacted by the changes that we're seeing right now, you know, by the losses that we're seeing right now. So it's a process of surrendering of the power right of the of the being in in the the power of control that's what i say you know of like coming together to finding solutions yeah. um i i had i just came back from massachusetts and i was with um a couple of um some some persons that had been part of the writing of that report and I had a conversation with 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 a scientist, a climate scientist, who told me or who put to words something that I started to experience around that time. And it's this mask. I don't know how else to describe it except to say it's a mask. It's a, it's a mask of forced hope. It, it, let me put it that way. It's like there's this... I was once writing a short story about um, someone who died and went to heaven or some heavenly arrangement. And uh, 
everyone in this social experiment had to be happy, needed to be optimistic. I'm not going to tell you the end of it. I hope to write it and release it one day. <laughs> not going to spoil the plot. But the idea is these persons I was having conversations with, they, they seem to have this, I cannot let, Naomi, just like you were saying, I cannot fall. I cannot let this crack become wider. The breach will be too overwhelming. So I need to say to you all who are not part of that report writing process, that ritual, I need to say that everything will be fine. Even though I don't quite believe it myself, but everything will be fine. It, 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 it does a sense in which hope was becoming a carceral thing, right? Incarcerating their bodies and blocking them from accessing certain other frameworks of responsivity, of responsibility. But I'm, I'm really thinking about this idea. I just wanted to stay a bit longer because we often, um, I don't know if this is true for you, Naomi. I think, of course, in your context, there'll be rich conversations about loss. Um, but we often popularly just right, get right chase because loss is, by the way, right? We want to get right down to it. We want to get right to the solutions, maybe the sixth iteration or the seventh I, uh, IPCC report. Is there a sense for both of you that we are going around in circles? And, and maybe at this point in time, death ceases to be the threat. That, that, now, maybe it's not even death that gets our impending doom that is getting in the way. Maybe it's, maybe we are kind of captured in a way of sensing the world. I often name it a, a sensorial monoculture, right? That blocks out grieving, that says no, that the only thing we can let into the room is a rapid eternal optimism that we can put to use anytime we want. Like we yeah. mustn't give up. But there's, but there's, could, could you speak to that? I, know, I don't know what this invites in any of you, but is there a sense we're trapped? Do you have that feeling that we are trapped? We're stuck? Um, let, me, let me respond to the idea of the circles and bring actually the, the symbol, the very common indigenous symbol of the spiral. Right, in mm. which we keep coming back to a similar place, but somehow something shifted. Things have shifted. Mm. Things has moved, you know, and continues to be transformed depending on what our insights and our behaviors are. Mm. Mm. And another thing that is uh, that is, I, I really want to mention um, today in the Maya calendar is the day Wuximi. And Wuximi is uh, translates to seven death rebirth, and so the power of that is that how Shimi, uh, which is the death rebirth, it's the process of composting, right? Mm -hmm. There is a moment in which, in order to change, we need to let go. We need to surrender. Right? We've been building upon that idea. And what are the things that we need to surrender the most at this moment? Are the narratives of who we are. Mm -hmm. Who is it that our identity is? Not only as individuals, but who are we as a collective as well? Mm -hmm. Either 
country collective, planetary collective. And even before that, beyond that, uh, move or transcend the narrowness of just the human species and see ourselves as part of a planetary collective, right? That's the idea of ecological belonging that I developed. Um, but that allows us that all those stories that we have been imposed upon us mm -hmm. by systems of political and economic divisiveness that we know started with colonial processes that continue consequences to this day, uh, that we can let go of all of those stories that keep us separated, alienated, not even realizing that we ourselves are nature. You know, we are natural beings, part of this webbing of life. Yeah. And so how can we then compose of those stories? But then with intentional participation, participation that brings all, all these different voices, all these different origin stories, we can recreate a new collective stories of belonging, mm -hmm. of kindness, of awe and sacredness. Mm -hmm. that we can then truly build a sense of reverence for the whole of Mother Earth. Mm. And that allows us to then die, you know, let death do the process. But knowing that that composting is to give rise to new forms of life, yep. forms of life that are emerging, right, that are transitioning for a story of belonging, right? So that's the rebirth, that's the re-emergence, and that's the hope. So, so, so death becomes cartographical in some sense. It, it, not, a, not a bus stop, not a terminal point, but a lively vocation, a multi- yeah, the continuation, exactly. Yes. The yes. continuation. Please go ahead, sister. I, I, and, I uh, so, so we are not trapped, if anything, perhaps trapped only in stories of impossibility. Mm -hmm. But I love saying that dreaming is the chrysalis of hope, where time without time is unleashed, when we set ourselves free. Mm -hmm. So we are then able to let go and return, but return not just um, without intention, but really carefully crafting collectively what we want to bring to the world. Thank you, sister. I'm going to hold that in with some great tension with whatever Naomi is about to say. Um, well, I, I guess it was thinking about this, um, you know, what is, I, I love the phrase um, hope as a car carceral thing, because I, you know, I have often felt that there was almost a kind of, you're ordered to have hope sometimes. Um, you're ordered to have hope. If you're, if you're a public person, right, there's a, there's a sense of, you, you know, you must perform hope for others. Um, you know, and, and, you know, in my own experience, I, you know, I used to be somebody who did that a lot. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would go out there and perform hope. Um, and, you know, I made myself a promise 
actually was probably about 15 years ago. I had a, had a, had a conversation. I'm not going to name the person. It was backstage at a, at a um, literary festival. And, and um, I, I had just written the shock doctrine and I, you know, it was one of those speeches where it's like terrible, terrible, terrible for 40 minutes. And then like five minutes at the end, but we can do it. You know? <laughs> and, um, and this person came up to me and he said, you know, I really don't, I really don't share your, your, your optimism. You know, I really think we're, we're lost. You know, the, the right owns all the, they, they, they own all the media, they own talk radio, they've got the churches They're you know, like, what do we have? And, and, and then he went out and gave a real fire and brimstone, you know, doom and doom and gloom talk. And I, and I thought, you know, I absolutely understand how he got there and I probably will get there sometime soon. I mean, I could already sense that. But I kind of I made myself a promise that if I did, I'd stop going on tour. I mean, I wouldn't just go talk to thousands of people telling them that they should also join me, you know, in this state of of a total absence of because we know that these emotions are we are as we as Yuri has been reminding us and as as, as 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 you said in your opening bio, I mean, we are a web, right? So when we put an energy into it, it changes it, and and so. I have been experimenting with shutting up a lot more because I am in that state and I want to, I, I don't want to beat myself up about it, but I also feel a responsibility not to tell other people that they need to come with me there. I will say mm-hmm. feel like we need to not be afraid of them, but that to me is different than kind of being an evangelist hopelessness. Yes. I will not do that. I, 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 that's where I draw the line. Um, but in terms of what, what the stuckness is, you know, I think a lot of it is these is is these narrative structures that that that, that are encoded from the Old Testament, the New Testament, Hollywood action movies, right? That tell us not just that not not necessarily that we're doomed, but that we are going to get saved at the very very last minute, right? It's it's not all of us, the chosen ones, just just the good ones. <laughs> Probably you too. Definitely not me. <laughs> yeah, probably we are not too. <laughs> Definitely not me. But that's the narr- I think that's the, that is that is the that is the the prison too. That's that story structure because I think you know I'm I'm so much more afraid of cruelty than I am of death. Of how we yeah. treat one another. Um. At, when we fall down, what do we do? Do we hold each other or do we fight each other? I mean, what? We kill each other. What mm-hmm. do we do when we fall, right? Is there a way to fall with grace and love and 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 to catch one another, right? That's where, um, that's what scares me, as we all know, because we're seeing so much evidence of, of, of stabbing one another as we fall. And that's such a mythological mm-hmm. figure, right? This uh, image. Um, I loved the film Don't Look Up, by the way. I know it was controversial. But what I loved about it was that it it was it played with the Hollywood trope of we're gonna of we're gonna get saved at the last minute. And I was just like, no, we're not. It's gonna hit. You know? yeah. I just thought that was so bold. Yeah. Uh there there well I I like the film too. Um Don't Look Up. But but to use that as a springboard to something else, there is a sense in which we are looking up. The, um, we are 
there's a posture that comes with white stability, a white modernity that says, keep your back straight and, and be, and, and look up, right? That is your value isn't a transcendent. You, you are, you, you come from outside of the world. Uriah constantly reminds us that we are part of this sweltering, sweaty cosmos. You know, we're part of this dense, um, network of ecologies. We're not apart from it, but there is a sense in which modernity invites us to look beyond the material, whether phallic adventures into space um, with Musk leading the charge. Um, I don't know. And, and, and that, that's what I'm speaking about when I talk about stockness. I constantly get this idea that our politics is reproducing this tautology of responses like we just keep going around in circles, the spiral. And yes, things change. Even spirals are not neat and tidy. But I think it's a very, very apt metaphor or figure, the death spiral of the ant, for instance, how we're constantly going around the trail and how something else is needed. And I think we're already speaking about this. Um, but, but this idea that loss is the enemy to be vanquished, Naomi, with death being a villain in a Bible, for instance, at the end of time, death, the villain, will be will be will be deaded, <laughs> will be deaded, right? It will be right. This this yeah. idea seems to be this apocalyptic idea is is stitched with our politics, and I wonder if loss is a politics in itself. If this invitation to other sensorial ways of being with the world, of noticing that the universe, the universe's most prolific product is loss. But loss is not pathological. Loss is how things transform. Uriah is telling us that things change. They become different. They become other. But it, you can't just jump from here to there without going through the thresholds, you, without becoming black, without becoming death, right? Is, is, is there a sense in which there is a different assemblage of resources, a different framework, different stories we can tell that climate scientists in their shut up and calculate posture, <laughs> right? What did you say? What did you call it, uh, Naomi? You called it evangelist of hopelessness, right? I, I feel that's even, I, I feel like even hope as presented within modernity is this shiny thing, right? It's, it's shorn of its prickly edges, but in my traditions, hope is a trickster, right? There isn't a binary between hope and hopelessness. To hold hope well is to hold hopelessness, is to embrace it, is to know that things may not go out our way, right? And that is the beauty of this poetic saga that we call reality. But I'm, I'm speaking too much. There's there's always not enough. <laughs> um, but I... I... I bring both of uh, your ideas uh, of uh, loss and and grief and the push for uh, uh, fleeting, hyper aroused state of um, hope, uh, and then how that bridges into rituals of meaning. Thinking of it is precisely the not knowing what's going to lead the way mm -hmm. to our right action. Um, 
those stories of the paternalistic savior that comes in the end and saves the show, those ideas keeps us not only disempowered, but keeps us also in ignorance. And uh, Sister Naomi was saying the fear to um, the fear of um, uh, uh, well, the, what's the fear that is causing these these problems? And in my case, I fear ignorance, right? Because that's what keeps us perpetuating systems without knowing that we are part of those problems. So without having a deep reflection, you know, deep contemplation into which is our part that we continue these old narratives that need to be composted, then things will not change. And by your brother, you asked, are there other stories? Mm -hmm. There are so many stories, mm -hmm. 7,000 different languages spoken in the world each of which will have an origin story about who the who we are and how we got connected. Many of those stories we haven't heard and we are losing those stories every day. So how do we create now platforms of belonging of all those different stories in which then we can find meaning, right? Meaning for new ways of identifying ourselves stop or letting go of those what keeps us stuck in narratives of isolation or domination or ownership or control and rather weave into narratives of belonging to the earth of reciprocity you know of returning and all of these many other ways you know that that we haven't yet heard um, but part of that is as we have been mentioned already now mentioning from the very beginning the political platform that keeps only giving rise or giving a uh, voice to the old, same old stories you know, that that mm. keep um, keep us trapped mm. and, and that leads me Naomi I, I don't know if you wanted to respond or if you wanted to respond to that but that leads me to a something of a difficult question and we can hold this together we're we're in this together um, so it's not a left or right thing is it and I'm speaking about the assemblages of institutional politics as we have it today. One is a denial of climate issues. One is um, a reinforcement of those narratives. And somewhere in between is, um, or rather transversally, is this unknown politics that is inviting us to do something different, I think. But what would you say to, to this um, barely discernible idea that I think I've been able to parse from Yuria's comments now, that it, it's not a left or right thing. Is there something there? Well, you know, I think that, 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 that you and Yuria are talking about like a total paradigm shift. Um, and so left, left and right are within the paradigm that we're talking about in this transformation. Um, we know that capitalist nations and, uh, you know, industrial socialist nations have both waged war on, on the earth. That, um, yeah. You know, the, if you look at the charts of emissions, uh, emission reductions, uh, the only time there have been dips uh, is, is when there have been world economic crises 
in, within capitalism and when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, so no, it's not within that classic sense a left-right thing, but I would push back a little on the idea that it sort of transcends these categories because I do think that it is an interrelational versus dominance hierarchical thing. And if you look at the social science around right, left, political identification, you have much stronger identification with a dominance-based worldview on the right. Uh, and the further right you go, the more attachment there is to, you know, what the Christians, you know, call the great chain of being, right? It got on top, angels underneath, white men, you know, bottom rocks, inanimate objects, right? And so I think, you know, when I said earlier, I'm more afraid of cruelty than I am of death. I'm ter- what terrifies me is what what the pyramid and and, I, and and I'm not saying the left doesn't believe in the pyramid. I'm just saying that that tends to be less attached, tend to have less identity bound up in it. Right. The research I've seen. And so, if the, the more attached you are to that hierarchy of life, when when we fall down and we are falling down the stories of dominance rationalize extermination, genocide. Uh, So I'm not comfortable with just saying it's trans left, right. And there's nothing to learn from these um, distinctions. Cause, cause I do think that, 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 that the right is like the far right is if we think about what, what, what is underneath that ideology, it's the, it's the hierarchy. It's the dominance. It's I built myself. I deserve what I have. If you don't have what I have, you must have done something to deserve that. And that idea can then allow me to rationalize your death. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't think we can throw it out altogether. <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't say that either. I wouldn't throw, throw that out. But I, I wasn't saying transcendent. I was saying transversal. Um, so not above it all, not like some atmospheric thing, but something that kind of queers the boundaries a little bit. And that even within these paradigms, um, there's a sloshy mechanism that kind of brings them together in ways that that leaves them intact in their differences, but disturbs their boundary-making processes. It's almost like they're co-making each other. I'm, I'm speaking about the ways that our politics only leads to the co-creation of the other side, right? And reinforces the other in terms of even in our entrenching of our identity, we actually make room for the other to be the other, right? So not transcendent, but transversal. Um, but but it's this seems to be exactly the 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 issue for me here. I had a dream recently, and I I don't usually have I don't know about both of you, but I don't usually have lucid dreams. I never wake up with um, anything from my dream. I cannot remember my dreams except um, yesterday. I woke up with um, a sentence and this sentence was the geometry within the geometry of the exquisite um, you need loss. Right? That, that in order for new things to blossom this is my interpretation because I did not intentionally coin these or phrase this, but the idea that 
novelty and newness and transformation is somewhat premised on on loss on the on the cracks in our edges i i think i think we want to speak to that a little more i i would like us to shift the arrangement of our conversation and i'm trying something new here um and i'm gonna shift the baton so to speak around so we can ask each other questions okay but for now could we just without tying a bow just spiral out of this idea that grieving is not and i think we need people to hear this grieving is not in the way grieving together falling apart together might might very well be the most ecstatic the most animated politics in response to these moments that we can muster because um yes the world that is producing and this is not to belittle that either um the world that is producing um recycling as a response to um, climate chaos does not know how to notice that what is supposedly recycled 93% of of that comes to me to my world to nigeria to india to vietnam and it fosters this pleasure principle this idea that we are the good guys we are on the we're we're on the right side of history is there a trap there is there also something to be said about through your experiences and your scholarship and your your own dreaming and your own experiences of loss that let's stay with this crack there is life here Yuria um, I love of this um <laughs> I love of seeing grief as ecstasy. I love of this power, the power of this image. Grief is the state of loss. Thank you. Right? Thank you. And loss of some part of our identity that has been severed. Either our worldviews or someone we love or some sense of stability. Yeah is lost and we grieve so we find ourselves out of our usual state of self so it is ecstatic in that sense yes. it pushes us yes yeah it pushes us outside of our current normal state of mind mm. into as into an in between state in between in betwixt a kind of dream like state mm. in which things can happen possibilities can arise that we don't know because we surrender right because we can rest in that unknowing and that's the place of possibility that's the place of potentiality in so many origin stories that we find in indigenous traditions the beginning of the world is a state of potentiality it's a state of soup cosmic soup in which everything is resting and little by little some order starts arising but that place of chaos again is a place of potential it's a place pregnant of possibilities and opportunities but then of course no pathway is set yes. everything can be so that's the unknown 
But to be there is to let go of knowing, let go of having the solution, right? Mm-hmm. Is letting go of the identity, letting go of the narrative, the collective, the individual, and then transitioning into the place of communitas, you know, like in ritual processes. And I'm thinking right now of, of specific funerary rites, for example. You, know? mm-hmm. you start in a place of loss and grief, And you enter in the place of in-between, the place of communitas, right? In which the whole collective helps the griever, the bereaver, into finding meaning of this new identity that is rising, that is yet to be found, yet to be found meaning in, and then eventually able to return with a new sense of self, a new sense of responsibility, a new sense of place and belonging, not only to its own, but to the community when it stands, and then with the larger community of things, right? So then that grief, as you said, is not in the way. Grief is the way to transformation is the way that we can let go and then be open to the mystery, be open to spirit to really flow through. And no matter what, the animating principle of life, which is spirit, will flow through. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm really struck by your description of, of grief ecstasy. Uh, yeah. And it just made me think, you know, there's, there really is nothing more intimate than grieving with someone and the, and the, the, the trust and the surrender of, you know, someone really allowing themselves to, to fall apart um, because it, it, they're trusting you to catch them. They're trusting you. They're trusting that they, that they won't fall into an abyss. Right. Um, and it and it did it really made me think also that grief, like my own experience of grief and collective grief, is that it is a space of regeneration. Um, it's 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 you know and, and this feeling, not I'm sorry to use a fossil fuel metaphor, but that you know I feel like so many of our social movements are running on empty, you know, because we are in this just do it again and again and again and never stop and never admit that we lost and never um, and never. It never makes space for uncertainty. And then you, you're like, why are there fewer people around me than when we started this, you know? Uh, well, because most people don't work like that. And and, and so it's really only going to just be a, that small core that is able to just keep going and running on empty. And and the thousands or hundreds of thousands that were with us a while back might be might, might not be with us anymore because they're, they're, they're feeling isolated. But, but you know, my... my um, question for both of you is, is something I've been struggling with around like I you know I mentioned I live in a temperate rainforest you know these these forests are filled with mother trees right these these, mm. these trees these trees that are composting into the earth and are the spaces of most intense life right um, so it's it's just very visual in my brain where I walk the dog you know I'm surrounded by the power of death as a life force um, and I take a lot of solace and metaphorical strength from that. But like I said, you know, we had a drought that lasted so long that that the forest stopped having that power. And and um, 
Mm. I just feel like it's worth naming that we've, like, like when we're thinking about the climate crisis and the extinction crisis, and I'm not using the word we because we are not all responsible for it. Mm. It wasn't all of our technologies that produced it. Um, and there's a, so much erasure in that idea. But we are all in it. Mm -hmm. And it has disrupted those cycles of regeneration, right? So the solace and the stories that tell us that we regenerate, that life comes from death, that's being interrupted. And that's that's the grief that I'm that I find unconsolable. Right. <laughs> and you know, I think you know, there's so much discourse around um you know, how young people are on the front lines of the climate crisis. Um, and of course they are because they are going to be living with this longer. But to me, there's nothing sadder than being an elder, being being at the end of one's life and knowing and not having the comfort that, yes, I'm leaving, but the systems are bigger than me and they are regenerating. Right. So how do we, how do you carry that? Like, how, like, uh, like, because this, these, these cycles seem to not, like we, like this thing called the Anthropocene has messed that up, <laughs> and, and and so, you know, when I look at some of, you know, I know this wonderful uh, oceanographer who spent his life studying the Great Barrier Reef, and he's at the end of his life, and I see in him this inability to just pass the baton and know that the cycle is going to continue, right? Because it's not. Yeah. I would um, bring us back um, Brother Bayo started our conversation today inviting us to a place of shared vulnerability yeah. and I think that place of unknowing is where vulnerability dwells not knowing really what will happen? There is a, a process um, called the nekia from nekis, like corpse. And it is the journey through the underworld or the land of the dead. And that also is present in origin stories or uh, traditions all over the world. In which there is that ritual process of losing the whole world, the whole identity, and finding oneself in a place of total vulnerability. We are right now in a global Nikia in which we don't know. And not knowing is the moment where we really find ourselves in the possibility of coming together for solutions. Because there will be no savior in the end. There will be no usually um, paternal figure, you know, we don't know. And unless we realize that, that deep vulnerability, actions will not start happening. And the right action will not start happening. I cringe a little bit with the, with the idea of the Anthropocene uh, because we need to name the whiteness of that term. No, you're right. I missed that. We need to name the 
Did you say whiteness of the term? The whiteness, yeah. The whiteness of the Anthropocene. Because um, it's not about hum humanity being in Mother Earth. It, that has happened for millennia with quite good balance. It's rather the colonial imposition of control, ownership, transaction that has created this abuse towards each other and Mother Earth. So that part is what needs to be really deeply acknowledged, deeply reckoned with, and then moving to those reparations that need to happen. So the solutions then start happening. Before that, we will just continue with the same old, same old, same old. Mm. You said it, Sister Naomi. Yes, not everybody has. A, we know very well that the whole global salad has not been responsible of uh, the situation of the world, but we now know as well that um, the move towards mimicking Western lifestyles continues this dissolution. Right. So we need to start shifting those stories. We need to start moving beyond that. And even also the realization, you know, speaking now of the, um, the, the conservation movements, you know, the green economies that are taking then again the personality of the Western individualist ideologies. That is only banking systems that are being benefited by uh, carbon offsetting and that indigenous peoples are being removed from their lands in the name of conservation, you know, in the name of protecting areas. And now we're not having access to our uh, lifestyle systems in our lands. So all of those issues need to be acknowledged and put really in the front so that um, solutions that really benefit the whole Mother Earth start happening. Otherwise, we continue with being that stuck in those narratives, right? Rationalizing that in the name of, uh, then we can continue the abuse. Thank you, Sister. I, I think the way I'll respond to that question, um, dear Sister Naomi, is is I I think of whiteness as this planet terraforming principle, right? It's, it's, um, it's the flattening of the wilds, it's the clearing that, that, um, that seeks to dismiss the agency, the deep intelligence, the wild and promiscuous embodied grounding um, forces around us and to reduce all of that to the individual the myth of the individual, the story of the separate self. Um, whiteness is not white people. <laughs> whiteness is not white identified bodies. Whiteness captured white identified body just as much as it has captured people that look like me. So whiteness is this thing that is spreading around the planet. And in that sense, we are participating, even the global south, in in this climate weathering. We've become the weathering bodies, the resource base for this machine that is flattening everything, right? Um, 
So, of course, I think we already know that climate isn't just the weather. It's how we think. It's how we name ourselves. It's how we perform technology. It's how we travel. It's how we eat. It's how we uh, make love. It's how we tell stories. It's all of this. And I think the invitation, the wisdom of chaos, I'm using those story elements, Uria, that you've invited in, the invitation is to shapeshift, is to, is to, in the words of Gatari, is to stand up and leave the couch, the psychotherapist's or the psychoanalyst's couch behind. That is preserving our individuality and coddling our minds into thinking that we are separate from the world we're trying to fix. This feels like the loss of white stability for me. It seems like we're storing this loss of stability. We just don't have the way to ritualize this loss. But there are lots of, from my vantage point, African elders and indigenous cosmological stories and accounts that follow the slaves and told the stories of capture. Um, it seems like what you're inviting us to talk about, Naomi, is capture. Like we are, we are the ships, the slave ships that pulled close to Africa are now pulling close to the world, to the shores of the entire world, and we've reached a point of no return. So we need to listen to people like Earl Lovelace or C.L.R. James or Hortense Spillers or Fred Moulton um, who say, maybe speaking truth to power is not the issue here. <laughs> maybe we're kind of, maybe even our struggle is part of the structure we're trying to upend. Maybe we need something beyond surveillance. Maybe we need, and it's not even transcendent. Maybe we need fugitive ways of addressing this crisis. And maybe grief is that ecstatic fugitivity that we're speaking about. Grief as art, grief as aesthetics, grief as vocation, right? That there is, there has to be a way, a bacchanal aesthetics in Lovelace's term, a way of convening around the crack, around the monster that has been monsterized or pathologized by modernity and offering it sanctuary. Maybe we're not in a time where we offer ourselves sanctuary. It's not a question of safety for ourselves as much as it is a making sanctuary for this thing, this transformative agent that has come to us, namely grief. Yeah, I think I'll, 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 st I'll stop there. <laughs> But, but, but how about we do this? And, um, there are questions coming in. Now, this isn't exactly framed as a context for responding to questions. Um, the, the aesthetic isn't one of, ah, I get it now. Now I understand. <laughs> because as Naomi said in the beginning, more data isn't the problem. More and more and more information doesn't seem to be working, right? So this isn't about getting it. This isn't about uh, um, amending your CV to say you attended this conversation between the three of us. This is really about sensorial encounters. Even confusion can be a blessing here. Um, but let's do this. Let's experiment with this to start things up. There are questions coming in. I will read it out. Um, I think Sarah is going to be feeding us some of them that are interesting to respond to. There are no guarantees of answers. Everyone listening, no answers here, just responses, just gestures. Um, and if you feel called to respond to it, 
Naomi, Urea, then please do. Let me take one. Is how do we prepare for the chaos? Okay. I resonate with Naomi's fear of cruelty. We must take, we must make community in our places to traverse and build the new. So kind of answering the question, but I'll go back to the question. How do we prepare for the chaos? How do we prepare for the big question, big question, Naomi? No, 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 sorry, Yuria, Naomi, any one of you. I kind of named you there. That's why I named you again. Please. Grace, goodness, that we cannot prepare for the chaos. Otherwise, there's no chaos, right? So precisely chaos is the surrendering. So the reason why uh, the beauty of vulnerability now, it's that brings us into the, the real embodied need of others. Like, oh, I don't know. We don't know. So then we come together, right? In mm -hmm. those moments of deep vulnerability, shared vulnerability, we realize we're actually much closer than we imagine. So let yourself be in the chaos, embrace the chaos and embrace it as a place of possibility, as a place of unknowing where life can emerge. Yuria, mm. mm. come on, give us a little handle somewhere. So you're saying there's no certainty, nothing to hold within the chaos, nothing? <laughs> the, we can hold into life herself into spirit herself, you know, which is what's animating the right action. That's why we need that moment of reflection and contemplation to really understand. We see life, the whole of cycles of nature that are talking about that process, mm. that process of resting, that process of emerging, that process of blooming, and mm. then calming and wilting and passing to then rest again to reemerge. So we see those processes over and over. We leave those processes too, even though we want to keep a state of summer and spring all the time, right? So how can we allow ourselves also to enter into that place of unknowing, which is the place of resting, the place of gestation? Right. Right, and where does the seed rest? Where does the seed in rest? the great peach blackness of possibility that is Mother Earth? Hmm. And we don't see, but in those unseen worlds, in the in between, the huge network you were saying um, by in the beginning, the mycelial network, you know, hmm. that connects all around you know, the cosmic networks that connect us. So mm. holding on to that. But perhaps also we need to let go of the holding itself, needing to let go of hope itself, you know, and allow us to really sense, really embody, let it feel through the body, mm. the process of grief, because that's where the transformation will happen. Mm. When we, we let ourselves go of ourselves. Thank you so very much, sister. Thank you. Naomi. Yeah, I would just add that, um, you know, letting go of hope is not the same as letting go of love. 
and mm. you, that in these moments of chaos, right? You think prepare for the chaos. There's chaos everywhere, all over the place, and and it's unevenly distributed. Um, and what we know from disasters, you know, these staccato events, right? When we're any ability to deny, ignore is upended by a wildfire, a hurricane, a heat dome. The, mm. From what I can tell, you know, from, from the, the, the research, the research that, that, that I've seen and, and been part of, the killer is loneliness, the killer is isolation. Um, it's not the only killer, mm. but it is... It is the deadliest force, much more than high winds um, or, or soaring heat um, or rising waters. It's people left alone in their homes, mostly elderly people, uh, overwhelmingly disabled people. Love, community, connection saves lives again and again and again. Um, so I guess com coming back to what I was saying earlier, how do we fall? Do we fall holding each other or stabbing each other? How are we... How do we use the falling as an opportunity to, you know, as, as, as you said in the question, how do we build community? I mean, that's, that's absolutely key. And to be a boring leftist. <laughs> <laughs> I also think we need oh. to invest in non-market housing and public health care <laughs> and food for all because these things make us or make it less likely that we turn on each other because we have less of a feeling of scarcity. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really love how then love is entering into our conversation, kind of like embracing the whole of the conversation. And I love thinking of um, how love, and in all its myriad forms, brings grief into meaning, rage into action, and despair to transformation. So from yeah. that grief as ecstasy, then love as the webbing of life. Hmm. Thank you so much, Naomi. And and adding the leftist part too was a was chef's kiss. Um, there's a question, and I think it's a beautiful way to 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 come to a plateau. Um, and it, it just drawn from that strand of love. I think of love as the generative incompleteness of everything, of all things. Um, that is, love refuses to leave us isolated. Speaking of isolation, the modernity's myth, modernity's story is that we are alone and we need to be alone because we're essences and fleshed, you know, Essences of enfleshed. I think that's one way to put it. Um, and this myth of the neoliberal, the one who is only garlanded by market forces and maybe nothing more, <laughs> is modern civilization's greatest, um, I don't want to say illusion because it brings in a, a notion of reality that I'm not quite comfortable with, but its performance, modernity's performance is, is isolation. Um, isolation for me is not a, a matter of what I'm feeling inside. Rather, it is an ecological, I'm going to use the term affect, 
it's it's an affective trance right it, it's not just inside the the private is public um simultaneously it's how billboards um standards of beauty notions of expertise how the schooling system and how the architecture of the city creates us right emotions have never been human issues they've always been more than human animist configurations so that to to ask this question and this is the question and I'll, I'll put in our midst is how do we deal with feelings of isolation that arise from living in a world slash society i live in the uk says this person that can feel majoritively in the dark about where we are with the climate emergency. And my partial response to that is that the, in the philosophies, the feminisms, the indigenous ideas that nourish my work, um, there are always openings and cracks. Yuria said something about the spiral that produces molecular differences. Right? There, are always, there are always little glimpses of novelty that might be pathological to modernity. My instigation is follow those feelings, follow those um, desires to where they might lead and experiment around it. Sounds delusian, and it probably is, but the idea that where the crack is, is where, don't let me see where the light comes in. I'm, I'm kind of tired with light metaphors. Light comes into the crack. And darkenment is what we're doing now, not enlightenment. It's where, the loamy soil comes in. So where that leads, the crack is the invitation to lose our way. Um, that's my partial response. There, there's other things I could say, but I wanted you both to speak to that. And maybe this is how we wrap things up, if there's no space for one more question. Well, I'll go so that Yuri, I can close us out, because you know, I have faith in you. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. You, yeah. I am. I, um... I was struck by by the part of the question that talks about, yes, being in the UK and feeling that people are in the dark about the climate crisis. Um, you know, I, I often hear this sort of, what do we do about the people who don't care? What do we do about the people who, you know, who are indifferent? And, 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 and I think I would just say, don't buy it. <laughs> I don't believe it is possible to not know, to, to, um, to, to not care, uh, about about the scale of loss that we're talking about, um, mm. part of the chapter, whether we like it or not, whether we whether we know whether we consciously know it or have ever been taught it, it's just true. So, um, so I think it helps to not come at it from a space of I need to make you care about something. Um, and and actual and think about it more in the sense of how do we how do we open up space to know what we already know to feel what we know hmm. and and to come at it with the humility that probably we haven't figured that out either um, and uh, yeah so 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 hmm. I think that um, that part of being able to hold even if fleetingly, the weight of, of the moment um, mm. is is these kinds of different affective states and different stories that um, that that 
that are not the savior narrative, that are not the apocalypse narrative. Um, because we, you know, we are, we are in this time of just, of, of, of getting hit with events that very few people prepared for, right? The pandemic was one, um, yeah. are many, many more. And those moments are super dangerous, right? Because we, you know, if you're, if, if you're attached to a certain story and suddenly there's an event without a story for it, you're putty in the hands of tyrants um, who want to stick a really dangerous story in your head, right? And I think we, we, we can all think of examples like that. So th this process of weaving different kinds of stories, resurfacing stories that were, that, 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 that colonialism and capitalism and whiteness attempted to exterminate, mm -hmm. that's disaster preparation. <laughs> you know, that, that is, that's, that's more important than stockpiling toilet paper. That's really, really important for the, for the shocks to come. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you for the conversation with you again. Sister Yuri. Um, yeah, I will um, um, also uh, converse to what Sister Naomi said about the, the um, recurring to stories that may also be perpetuating these systems you know, and how within... Um, a world that is shifting rapidly, that um, technological advances are not, um, you know, are creating a, an alternate sense of, of identities. Um, the crack that you were talking about, yes, let's now invite the possibilities of darkness, you know, that chaos, that unknowing. Mm. Thinking of crack that enters into the depths of Mother Earth yes. to find that well of medicine, that well of life. And also the crack that also symbolizes the beginning of rupture of what we know, you know of the systems that we know. So rather than recurring to um, fundamentalist ideas or stories, then we re recur to participatory, intentional stories, you know, collective stories, which is why it's so important to be acknowledging, reckoning, and repairing uh, the current identities so that we don't keep perpetuating them. So mm. we just not allow anything to happen. No, rather we feel empowered to intentionally create the stories of belonging that we're looking for, mm. using that crack as the entering, you know, or like the coming out of what possibilities are. Mm. And I also feel profoundly grateful for this time together, so generative, and that allows us to really welcome what we don't know and yeah. our not having the solutions yet, allowing the questions without the answers. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's just appropriate that grief, we started with grief and somewhere along the line, it became gratitude. And, and that's really holding grief well, I think. Thank you. Thank you both, Naomi, Yuria, um, for holding this space with us. And for everyone who has been listening, um, clock time says it's about time to, to stop. But African time says, nah, 
<laughs> no, no, that's not how to think about time. Time is always beginning, right? Just because clock time says it ends here, ends here doesn't mean the inquiry doesn't continue. And this is just to let you know that you're not alone, that we are in this planetary conversation together. Let it spill. Take it to a party. Take it to your community, to your neighborhood. You know, let's have these conversations and let them change us so that we might become different. All right. We'll see you in your dreams. Um, Naomi will show up first and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then Uriel, but probably not me. We'll see you soon. Thank you so very much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 